Hello, I'm Sarah Vine and this is Sarah Vine's Female Half Hour from Mill Plus. I'm joined this week and every week by my friend and co-host Imogen Edwards-Jones, who this week, dear listener, I know, <laughs> I know you always wonder because, you know, it's always a bit mm. of a little, it's a bit of geographic roulette, is in is, Ibiza. I am in Ibiza. This week mm. I shall be in Ibiza. The yes. jet set hot girl summer that you are having. I am a hot girl summer, yes. So hot. Are you in a caftan and Birkenstocks? That's what I want to I know. am definitely in Birkenstocks because I is very fashionable. <laughs> I know. I discovered this yesterday. I was reading the, the newspaper. Last. And there was a piece by Alexandra Shulman, who used to be the editor of Vogue and who now writes mm. for the Mail on Sunday, saying how fashionable Birkenstocks were. And in fact, they, you can now get sort of, you know, Manolo Blahnik Birkenstocks, which oh, costs well, those money. Oh, they're not to be and, that nice, I don't <laughs> <laughs> so then I, I've always thought of Birkenstock. Well, the thing is, I've got massive size eight feet. And in a Birkenstock, I look like mm. a, a German man. There is that element <laughs> to the Birkenstock, yes. Because I've got very small feet. So, so it makes me look slightly more in proportion than I'm not going to fall over when I've got yeah, this, my big Birkenstocks on. But I've also uh, got winter Birkenstocks. So they do a sort of fur-lined one. A boot. Which you can have, you know, being a bit lazy around the house. Yeah. Or popping to the shops. Yes. But apparently, I mean, I then went and looked on the Birkenstock website and they do have like proper high fashion Birkenstocks. But, you know, the trouble is there's still the sort of hairy toe white sock association for me anyway with mm. the Birkenstock. I don't think I'll ever get over that. Yes. I might buy myself yes. a pair, but the trouble is I know that there'll be a 42. And that's just very <laughs> large. It's a lot of cork. But, I mean, but, but loads of blokes are wearing them too, so it's sort of bloke stock. So yeah. uh, lots of men, particularly here actually, in the hot Ibiza, <laughs> everyone is wearing a bloke oh. stock. Oh, God. <laughs> you do get to I, see their hairy, slightly unattractive toes. That's the only problem. It's the hairy toes that I can't cope with. I don't know mm. why I can't deal with hairy toes, but I just, I, you know. Yeah, well, that's, well, that's my, my, why I've, I favour a clog, as you know. Yes. I mean, my own hairy toes are bad enough. Every time I have my legs well. waxed, I have to get the lady to do the toes. <laughs> How embarrassing is that? Please, it's can you do my toes? It's they do to do your toes. <laughs> you think, oh, God, Really? <laughs> What? Really? There as well? Oh, Who knew? Dear. I knew. Terrible. No, last time I went to have my waxing, she asked if I wanted my nostrils done, which is really awful, I have to <gasps> say. Oh, I don't ever go back. That's very rude. What? <laughs> what if your nostrils done as well? I said I yes, cried. because I did. I have gone and cried on my own in the car. <laughs> I was so embarrassed I said yes and then she thought she did this little thing where she put two <laughs> she put two cotton buds dipped in wax oh on my, my nose God. and then pulled them out and it was oh awfully painful did your eyes water yes, yes. a lot oh my god Sarah that is TMI <laughs> <laughs> anyway, coming up on today's show, mm. it's exam results day and many students have been disappointed having received lower grades than hoped. But mm. should we be putting our children through exams at all? We'll be joined by an education expert who says the system can be modernised for the better. And we're also going to be joined by my daughter, who I Wait. literally couldn't keep out of the booth this morning when I said I was going to be talking about exam results. Yes, bashing her off. And 80s fashion is back. But if you wore it the first time around, can you again? We'll be speaking mm. to Daily Mail's former fashion editor from the 80s. But first, the world was shocked by the awful attack on Sir Salman Rushdie, who was giving a lecture in New York last week. Mr Rushdie, who has lived under a death threat for decades following the publication of his book, The Satanic Verses, has long been hailed as a symbol for freedom of expression. And this attack has been viewed as an attempt to quell those freedoms. 
Joining us now is Andrew Copson, Chief Executive of Humanists UK, who counts Salman Rushdie among their patrons. Andrew, hi. Hi. Thanks for joining us. I found this attack really shocking because part of me felt really guilty because I'd forgotten that he was living under a fatwa. Do you know what I mean? I just got so used to the idea that, oh, Salman Rushdie, yes, yeah, you know, he's going to... I felt terrible because, of course, you know, he has been living with this for 30 years and it's not a joke. And then after that, then there was all this stuff about someone saying to J.K. Rowling, you're next, and she's had all these death threats, not from a fatwa, but because of the sort of whole trans row and stuff. And it does just feel like this ability to say what you think and to it not be, you know, not result in you being injured is really under threat. Well, I know what you mean about the shock because it did seem, didn't it, that, I mean, Salman Rushdie had become the man who survived the fatwa. Oh, you know, it's oh. 30, 30 years ago. And so the idea yeah. was that it's over then, you know, what's, what's triumphed is actually being able to go about your yes. business and express yourself freely. And then it's not. And here's this guy who now has said in what he said publicly, you know, about his motivations, has said that it was about the insult to the region and so on. Um, so, yeah, it does seem part of not just the, the long legacy of the fatwa, but also a strikingly current trend as well. Artists, mm. critics, people um, who express themselves, stand up freedom of expression are under attack as never before, all over the world, actually. I mean, it's true from India to the US, and it does seem to be an increasing trend. Made much worse by the internet. I mean, like one wonders whether, yeah. if there wasn't a, a sort of the internet, whether or not anyone would have remembered <laughs> that Salman Rushdie had a sort of Damocles hanging over his head because, of course, it was 30 years ago, but nothing ever goes away now, does it? That's the issue. No, that's right. That's true. And I think quite like the way that the the Iranian regime used, actually, at the time, the original fatwa, very modern communication methods to disseminate Mm. the news that the Ayatollah had put this sentence on Salman Rushdie. Now, as you say, there's another sort of information revolution which carries this sort of threat everywhere all at once, you know, and people can keep it forever in the forefront of their minds, as you say. People can't forget, they can't think aloud and then mm. uh, discuss and debate online and, and with mm. one of their things maybe then them later saying, well, they've changed their mind. You know, the, no. the internet doesn't leave much room for nuance and development and change. It fossilises no. everything and entrenches everything forever and that's a problem. There can be no progression. So you can, you know, people will get counsel for something that they said when they were sort of 19, when they're in their 40s. And of course, right. people do change. And what does, so what does your organisation do? We do a lot of things, actually. We're a very multi-purpose organisation. We've Mm. been around since 1896, so we celebrated our 125th anniversary last year. And across that time, we've done really the same types of things. So we're we're quite well known for our ceremonies. You know, we provide non-religious funerals, non-religious weddings and services that non-religious people need if they don't have the Mm. religious options. And then we do a lot of education work um, around Mm. non-religious philosophies and, and humanist approach to life. But our other main activity is in advocacy. So we've advocated for freedom of expression, freedom of thought, freedom of choice mm. on a range of different fronts. You know, the world of mm. 1896, different from the world of today, but the principles have remained constant. So that's our, uh, our keynote, really. And Salman Rushdie is part of your organisation, presumably came to you as a result of his experiences? or Well, um... exactly, exactly. Well, he's a pretty comprehensive humanist, you know, because he's a mm. human rights advocate and an advocate mm. for sort of equality and justice and very progressive sort of guy so he's uh he's i think he's interested in humanism in the whole Mm. spectrum but you're right specifically of course our support for free expression and humanists were one of the the few organizations to come out immediately at the time 
and support Sam Rushd at the time of the fatwa, one of our mm. doughty older members, who's, who's dead now, unfortunately, Barbara Smoker, stood mm. on her own in front of the anti Sam Rushdie demonstration held by Muslims and others in Trafalgar Square at the time, stood on her own in front mm. of them with a little placard that she made herself saying free speech. <laughs> so we definitely support him from the start. And I think that, you know, we continue to support people like him around the world today. I mean, the thing is, is I think in this country, we take free speech so much for granted. And when things like this happen, it feels like there's a sort of hand reaching into our world and basically, you know, snatching one mm. of us away and reminding us that actually it's not something that most people take for granted at all. And most of the world doesn't have free speech. No, that's right. And, and for most of our history, we haven't had it, of course, as well. It was only mm. in the 20th century that severe censorship was loosened. Mm. It was only in the 19th century that laws against sedition and blasphemy were, were loosened. And our blasphemy laws still exist in Northern Ireland. I mm. mean, they're small, you know, small fry compared with the, the mm. blasphemy laws that are capital crimes around the world. But nonetheless, we've had encroaching on free speech in this country with new government restrictions on protest, mm. new threats against speech online. So everywhere free speech is under threat. And I think not only is it under threat formally, but sort of informally as well. I mean, one of the consequences of the Satanic Versus affair is that people did begin to self-censor. People have yeah. now got it into their heads that, you know, offence is somehow a harm mm. rather than just something that might happen as a result of discussion, um, you know, debate, uh, the exchange well, of ideas. Yeah. And that's self-censor well, as well. It is, and I thought it was ironic that in the same week that Salman was attacked, you know, several universities announced that they would be banning certain books. You know, there's a kind of... Universities, that, no. Mm. Yeah, no, universities are always saying, you know, we must take this book off the shelves, this book is not acceptable anymore. You know, some of the more, more difficult pieces of literature are basically being censored. And the thing is, I don't understand why people can't read something, disagree with it, and just leave it at that. Why do they feel that they have to then break it? You know, it's that's what I can't understand. And it's interesting when you think about censorship online, because of course a lot of the censorship online is to do with abuse. So, you yes. know, the question you have to ask yourself is, should you censor somebody who threatens to kill J.K. Rowling because they don't agree with her views on trans women? It's a difficult question, isn't it? Because, you know, if you're in favour of free speech, you would say, well, they are allowed to do that. But then on the other right. hand, it's a death threat, you know. I mean, I don't think anyone can reasonably say that we should be in favour of all free speech forever of every type because, you know, apart from anything, we have some, we have laws of libel, we have, yeah. you know, the old classic of don't shout fire in a crowded theatre mm. if there isn't a fire, you know, that's mischievous and it should definitely receive sanction. And I think there might be a point where, for example, even setting out to offend someone repeatedly and constantly and in a targeted way may well amount mm. to harassment and we might want to intervene to, to prevent yeah. it. You know, there, there are lines that get crossed. Mm. But I think that the distinction that I would want to maintain is the distinction between actual real harm on the one hand, which we, there might be a case for protecting people against when it comes to words, because mm. words do ca cause harm. I mean, you're, mm. you're, you're a journalist yourself, you know, the power of words mm. that... We all believe in the power of words. They can cause mm. harm. Separating that from offence, because I think offence is not a harm. No. You know, even though it might be unpleasant, we mm. all experience it. Actually, offence can be a great gift. If you're offended, you can begin to re-examine yeah. your own assumptions, change your mind, you know, and that's not harmful. Yes, but the trouble is, particularly going back to the internet, the problem is, is that, you know, you can have free speech on the internet and people will say things that they will say and they will, for example, you know, people say things about me you know, just on a tiny little scale. But it's not necessarily the people who say the things who are likely to take action. 
there's always one sort of crazy person who will read all that stuff, believe it, think it's real, and then decide to take action. Do you see what I mean? So words have consequences, not just direct consequences in the sense that they are upsetting or they can, you know, make you feel terrible about yourself. But they can also incite other people who perhaps don't really... You know, who, who right. are maybe not completely... St- yeah, so that's the danger. Mm. I mean, that's what happened to poor David Amos. You know, he was killed by somebody who believed that he mm. had done all sorts of things that he right. hadn't done because he'd just read right. a lot of rubbish on the internet. Do you know what I mean? Do you, do you remember we spoke to Kemi about that last week, actually, mm. Sarah? Kemi, about yeah, bad enough. Pe- yeah. yeah, how people take things out of context and retweet them and change the meaning of what you actually said and in order mm. to incite other people. Yeah, exactly. And we had Kemi Badenoch on the podcast last week and she was saying the problem with that is that it makes any kind of sort of rational discussion about any issue that's at all complicated almost impossible. Mm. I mean, I wouldn't try to have a rational discussion on social media. I mean, that wouldn't be my <laughs> arena of choice for, for rational, That's true. rational but no, discussion. But what she was, what, no, quite, quite, what she was <laughs> saying is that, is that, you know, you'll be in a committee meeting and you'll be having a conversation with 10 other people and you'll say something and then one of the people in that meeting will take that thing that you've said out of context, tweet it out mm. as a sort of, you know, so-and-so said this about this and then suddenly the little nugget that you've said that was completely out of context is all over the internet mm. and everyone's got a point of view and everyone's shouting at you and suddenly, you know, yeah. that I mean, is a problem. There's a lot of bad faith around, that's certainly true. Mm. Um, and, and bad faith readings of, of things that people have said, I think, I mean, I would always try and look at something that someone had said and say, what did they really mean? Try and have a sort of good faith reading of it. But that's more of a personal value, you know, that I can't necessarily expect everyone to Mm. share. And so I suppose the consequences of what you're saying, if that's how the world is these days, is that we all have to be a little bit more careful and responsible about what we say. But then that Mm. does run the risk of tilting into self-censorship. Exactly. So it's a difficult balance because we're not going to reverse the existence of the internet and we're not going to probably reverse the existence of social media and social media probably isn't going to be regulated in the way that a discussion or a debate on a a programme or in one of our lives can be regulated. And Mm. so we're going to have to find some ways of coping with it and it might just be that unless we move out of that arena altogether... Mm. mm. I well, I mean, some people, some people, some people do. Yeah, well, I know. I guess good idea. <laughs> I think. Uh, you know, I, I think you know various celebrities have sort of decided to remove themselves from social media for this reason. I don't know. Mm-hmm. We, I don't think we're going to. We're not going to resolve this problem. But I, I think we should all just go out and buy the Satanic Verses. I tried to buy it the other day, but it doesn't seem to be in print. It's out of print, I it's think, isn't print. it? It's, it's, well, yes. it, it, it can be bought. I think the more optimistic a, people but, thought that it was had been sold like hotcakes ever since the attack on him and therefore it was unavailable. I'm not sure what the real reason is, but... <laughs> no, I think it's actually out of print. It is out of print. Oh, is it? <laughs> it is Other actually books out of are print, available. Yes. His, his, yes. his essays, of course, are very good. Midnight's Trial yeah. is very good. You can read a lot. Okay. His Midnight's essays are excellent. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yes. And I wish him well. Have you heard how he is? How is how he's doing? Is he recovering? Nothing more than no. everyone uh, in the media no. now. I mean, we were able to send mm. him a message uh, when it was uh, announced that he was uh, able to speak and, and off the ventilator. Mm. Um, and obviously that's very good news, but no, nothing mm. more than, than reported mm. elsewhere. Well, thank you very much. You know, this is a debate that is never going to end, is it? Let's be honest. Mm. That was Andrew Copson, Chief Executive of Humanists UK. <laughs> It's A-level results day and many youngsters have today received the grades that will define the next few years of their lives. But the figures show that fewer top grades have been awarded than in recent years. We're joined now by education expert and executive head at My Online Schooling, Rob Leach. Hi, Rob. Hello, thank you for having me. So I'm joined by Imogen, who is in Ibiza, and Hello. my daughter... Do- 
<laughs> my daughter, safely out of the way. And in my daughter, Beatrice, who got her A-levels results last year. Um, so we have some familiarity with the agony and the ecstasy that has been the exam results over the last few years. What are you finding at your end? It's been a difficult couple of years, hasn't it? And actually, if you look at the young people who are getting their results today, they would have had their GCSEs cancelled. They would Mm -hmm. have missed out on a huge amount of schooling because of the decisions to lock down. Their schools would have been inconsistent in terms of the quality of the online education. And then even this year, they've gone back to school, but staff absence was crippling earlier in the year. And actually, research from the, the Sutton Trust said that 21% 21% of those getting their results today had more than 20 days absent themselves this year related yes. to COVID. Yes. So you think actually, you know, this has been a really tough journey for them. And just to get to where they are, they've done really well. And also, a lot of them have had very little exam practice. That's the other thing. And of course, exam yes, practice... it's the first time, isn't it, they've yeah. been in exams. Yeah. Exam technique is really important for these things. I mean, you know, my daughter had hardly any time in school, I think, for her A-level year. We've also missed a trick and sort of gone back to the mm. stale, outdated exam system that we've had yeah, since the 1900s, really. Um, yeah. And it's not really fit for purpose. And I think we're missing a trick just by going back rather than yeah. looking forward and but changing that system. The problem is, is you've got a backlog of university students as well. Because, for example, my daughter, Beatrice, who's here, she didn't get in last year because her school filed the results wrong, filed one of her A-level oh, yeah, results wrong with UCAS. Story, yes. That was a nightmare. Oh, um, so terrible. she's deferred entry, but a lot of kids have deferred entry to this year. So this year is kind of already full up. Mm. Yeah, and I think that, that's only going to continue because, again, the results are, are slightly down this year compared to the last two years. Um, mm. And so there's that uncertainty, but there's also that reality where actually there will still be in the next couple of days young people that challenge their exam results and we mm. saw in 2018, 2019, 20% of grades that are challenged get changed. So mm. they're not even marked particularly accurately in the first place. So that sort of uncertainty lasts for quite a, a long time after the results are published. Wow. Mm. Obviously, lockdown was a terrible decision, full stop, mm. but it was a really bad decision for students. How can we unblock this sort of blockage that we've got? We seem to have a backlog that is just going to roll over from year to year to year. I mean, it must be very demoralising for students because what's the point in trying to study for your A-levels if you're just not going to get a place at university? Mm. I mean, so many universities now are giving the places also to foreign students because they pay a lot more. Mm. Uh, Because a UK student pays about £9,500 a year. A foreign Mm. student, I think, pays about £25,000 a year. And, of course, the universities are chasing the money. I think we've we've got two approaches. We can either continue to sort of be quite timid and just tinker mm. with the system, or we can be quite radical and review the exam system and say, do you know what, the 21st century needs something different. We will all remember sitting our paper-based exams in sweaty sports halls in schools up and down the country, <laughs> where you have these one-off, high-stakes, cliff-edge exams where actually it doesn't matter what you've done for the last two years studying, it all comes down to that one moment. If you have a bad day, that's it. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I think that the way that exams traditionally have happened, I mean, everything else has changed since the 1950s except for exams in education, especially because now, I mean, I've heard a lot of stuff in the news about them wanting to reduce the amount of creative subjects you can do and make it compulsory for you to get... Uh, like I think a, a high grade in maths and English for you to even be able to get into university, which is atrocious to me mm. because the, I mm. mean, especially the stuff I studied in maths GCSE and English GCSE, I really don't think it measured my intelligence 
whatsoever, whatever mm. intelligence should be measured by, because I don't really think you can measure intelligence. But I don't know. I just I found it really, really strange. And also the amount of friends I had that even though my A-levels were very unconventional because it was sort of COVID A-levels, people had like full on breakdowns consistently mm. through the A-level and GCSE seasons. There's no part of me that thinks that could ever be beneficial or even a learning experience for any of them to think that you have to have a breakdown and then do one test that will determine whether you get to go to mm. higher education. That just seems kind of strange to me. Yeah, it's a really good point because actually most young people when they go into the workplace will never have to endure that sort of system of assessment ever again. But I think we need to reflect on does our education system set young people up properly for the, for the modern workplace? Uh, how many of them leave school with great digital literacy skills? How many mm. of them have done entrepreneurship? How many of them are assessed in terms of their creativity or their problem solving. These are the skills that we need more than ever in the workplace. Mm. But our qualifications don't teach those skills. Now, exams certainly don't assess those skills. So really, it's all about this knowledge still. So those with good memory, well, they might mm. thrive. Everyone else actually is, is left out to dry something. It is a test of memory, isn't it? My brother was very good, had a very good mm. memory and as a result did very well at A-levels. You know, it doesn't mean he's in, intelligent. He's just very good at remembering I, things. I, mean, I, I think the current system is a test of a very particular type of intelligence. Mm. You mm. know, the sort mm. of intelligence that, you know, has very good memory, very linear, very straightforward, doesn't sort of encompass anyone with a slightly left brain or a little bit of, a, mm. you know, creativity is going to struggle in that context, I think. And it's a bit like when you have your driving test, you get your driver's license, you've got your theory part, you've got your practical part, and you need to do the theory part. There is that knowledge part to it. But it's a bit like just giving someone a license to drive based just on their theory test when you've never actually seen them drive yes. a vehicle before. You just want <laughs> yes. to do it. You know, there needs yes. to be this balance, and I think that balance is lacking at the moment. Yes. I mean, it's been really interesting for me to see how my daughter Beatrice, who was always, you know, told at school that she was not, not very clever, not very clever, not very clever. She comes out of school and has a year off and has flown in the normal world because her skills are just not very academic. But everything else she's really good at. Yeah. And also, like, if I look at my academic history in comparison to my brother, who's sort of got more of my father's intelligence, I would say, very much memory based, very much painfully academic I guess you could say <laughs> and he doesn't try he doesn't revise he doesn't even go to school that much and just sort of glides by whereas I would spend sort of like I'd go to school until I'd probably leave about 4 or 5 p.m and then I'd revise for two hours when I got home and then I'd go on Quizlet and then I'd put like notes up around my room so I try and remember stuff my brain didn't work like that it didn't remember names mm. and dates and all these kind of things all at one time and in addition to that, one thing I've really struggled with coming into the real world is figuring out how to do my tax rebate, figuring out like mm. that when I start earning a certain amount, I have to start paying tax or you go to prison and like how to do my, how to understand that um, when I do my student loan, you have to do this, this and that. And you have to have your pay slips and you have to know your national insurance number. And then where was this information in school? Like, where was this information when I was learning, when I was reading Animal Farm? I don't understand how sort of George Orwell has been relevant in my life at all, but I do think taxes have been. So, <laughs> and uh, sadly, I think they will continue to be. Uh, yes, I'm going, forever. Going 
<laughs> but Beatrice, it would be really interesting to hear from you if, if I sort of said what I think an alternative could be. And feel free to completely disagree with it. But I think that sometimes you've got to really give a, a clear example. So instead of these one-off exams at the end of the qualification, where you go into that sweaty sports hall where you do these paper exams and it's all or nothing, you know, this do or die approach. Rather than that, we have got technology, we've got adaptive testing, we've got augmented reality, we've got virtual reality, we've got the ability to do e-portfolios where students will add evidence of their learning over the whole course of their qualifications. And all of this is at our fingertips and it would remove these exams. It would remove this mockery every year of changing grade boundaries, it would take away this idea of schools being exam factories where it's all about tactics to get through the exam. And it would mean that actually we can just focus on making sure you've got the skills you need to get into the modern workplace and to thrive. What do you reckon? I mean, I definitely think that's a much more positive way to approach education. I do think the whole e-learning thing, it does need to be phased in because since going into a work environment in my year out, I've realised nothing is on paper. You have mm. to be able to type at least 60 words per minute. You have to be able to, like, understand how to use all formats of technology to be able to get by in an office environment. So I think that would be very important. I also do think sort of following on from, like, the submitting evidence every, like, throughout the year. That's to me, sounds somewhat like what they do in the US. They sort of do projects and then they get grades on them and then their grades are sort of accumulated every time they do give in a new piece of work or a new project. I actually think that'd be a much better way of doing it because it puts a lot less pressure on a child. And I don't, I really don't, I just, I'm, I'm quite, I just don't think a 15 or 16 year old should be having breakdowns over their education. I just don't think that's what they should spend their teenagehood doing. I also think we should probably be following the education models that they have in the Netherlands and stuff like that because I met a lot of people from the Netherlands and they all could speak perfect English, perfect Spanish, all these languages, impeccably behaved, amazing results, amazing, just so clearly intelligent and understanding and linguistically talented. And I was here with my, G when my very good GCSE and A-level results, barely being able to speak English properly, whereas they were sort of speak, happily speaking four languages. And I think that just proves that, the, that, that our education system is incredibly poor suited to the real world. In so many schools, the quality of education is really questionable because of all the other things that get in the way. And it's been a revelation for me to become the executive of an online school and to see how much more academic progress students make, how much more technology they're able to use uh, and therefore take with them. In terms but don't of they miss setting. out on their friendships and stuff? Mm. Or do you think that actually, because you, I mean, I don't know, maybe that's a good thing. I was very badly bullied at school. I would have been delighted if I could have just learned online because then I wouldn't have had to speak to any of the horrible people who no, were horrible to me. I, I, but there's, I, a, but I there's think... also other stuff to do in education, isn't it? Rather than not just be sitting there doing learning. Yes, you know, there's other... gym work. Well, musical instruments or theatre or anything like yeah. that. I mean, the idea that everything can be done online. I don't really totally agree with them. No, I agree. No, I mean, I it's, it's a really good question. We get that a lot in terms of the social interaction part of it. But I think you're right. So many of the social interactions in physical schools are actually quite negative. 
we have a lot of students with us who have been bullied or they have anxiety or they have low attendance because of that mm. to school. But also we have students in our school who have best friends around the world now. Mm. We have families that meet up over the summer holidays from Mexico and Scotland. We had two families joining together this summer holidays. And actually the extracurricular, we still do school performances and productions. It's different. Of course it is. And it's not right for everyone, but it's absolutely about what's best for the individual. But I do think mm. at the moment that the system isn't broad enough. And there will always be a need, a, a mm. large need for physical schools. And many of them are fantastic. But mm. what we'd also need to make sure is that, that the system caters for all. It's mm. very much mm. one size fits all at the moment. And I think that goes yeah. back to what we were saying about the exams as well. It's this mm. one size fits all memorization, high stakes, mm. cliff edge exams. And the whole system just needs to reflect on whether or not we can have a broader offer that meets more individual needs and is mm. able to harness the technology that's now at our fingertips to become a better holistic uh, system for young people in the future. Excellent. Yes, Brilliant. I agree. Um, well, thank you very much. And good luck to all of the pupils getting their results today. I hope you all get into your university or college of choice. That was Rob Leach, the executive head at My Online Schooling. The autumn and winter fashion shows have shown us one thing very clearly. The 80s are back again. <laughs> and one person who is celebrating is former Daily Mail fashion editor and founder of prelovedperfection.com, Gail Rolf. Gail, thank you so much for joining us. I have to say, oh. I have a love-hate relationship with the 80s because I was peak 80s as a teenager. Mm. I used to wear shelter pads under my bra mm. straps they had velcro to attach them yes actually mine had little <laughs> little poppers i wouldn't even go to the gym without shoulder pads on i seem to remember <laughs> i used to wear them in my pajamas did you not yes. in your pajamas yes oh, no i can't I, ever I mean, say i resorted to those details i have to admit <laughs> Well, I so think how, also, how are they looking? Why is it suddenly so 80s? What is the things that you've spotted that are so 80s? Oh, golly, there's so many. Shoulder pads are back, but I don't think they're as big and chunky as they were first time round. <laughs> uh, it's more of a slight definition to the shoulder. Some people will go a bit madder than that, but there's a lot of people out there doing it. And what about ballet flats? I hate ballet flats. I have big size oh, eight so feet. I, I look stupid in yeah. them. Uh, you see, I must admit, I'm at the opposite end of the spectrum and I have size four feet. So I love a ballet flat and I always have. And I've always <laughs> loved trainers because in the 80s I wore supergas. So, I mean... Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, so did I. I did because I, I grew up in Italy and we, all we had was supergas, I seem to remember. Oh. There was no other choice. It was either supergas or supergas. Um, <laughs> and it's a mystery to me that they're now fashionable because in my day they were just plimp soles. Mm. Yeah, they were just plimp soles. <laughs> they were. <laughs> Yes. The other thing that I remember the from the 80s, plimsoll is old-fashioned. Plimsoll, <laughs> yeah. The other thing I remember from the 80s is a root perm that you did at yes. home that you got your mum to do, obviously. I and had then one of those. fried your hair. And also a thing called Ultra Glow, which was a... Oh, I had that too. Do you remember Ultra Glow, Gail? Did <laughs> yes. you have Ultra Glow? No, what was Ultra Glow? A fake tan? <laughs> it was yes. a terrible sort of blusher, yes. And it was yes. advertised on the tube. Do you remember, Imogen? Yes, yes. And you used to do it all over your cheeks and across your uh, collarbones as well. Collarbones, to make you give yes. that glowing look. Yes. Oh. You see, I yes. think I am a decade or more older than both of you. So, oh. like you, Sarah, I was in my 20s in mm. 
the 80s, and I think that made a big difference. Oh, um, mm. yeah. I did have the ghastly perm, but it was given another... Though It was the Coupe Sauvage, and I had it <laughs> when I was down at the... Um, I was at the London College that, of Fashion <laughs> in 77, and that's when I got talked into having my dead straight hair transformed into the Coupe Sauvage, which took me Coupe two years Sauvage. to grow out. What always strikes me as extraordinary about those years, because now everyone has long hair. Long hair mm. is the thing. But if you look back then, we all had short hair. And yeah. I suppose the sort of icon of that was Princess Diana, who had amazingly beautiful thick hair and mm. wore it short, which now would just seem bonkers, wouldn't it? But I think yes, the reason absolutely we, right. Yeah. I mean, really strange. And But I think the reason we all had such short hair was because there were no product we didn't have mm. we didn't have and the tools or the products no. we didn't have the straighteners we didn't have no. the amazing curling tong things mm. that you know everyone has and doesn't even or, or good conditioner you know, yeah actually was, yeah <laughs> no exactly and I think that it was just so difficult looking after your hair unless it was short because everyone who had long hair basically just looked like they were out of you know massive great wind big tunnel exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well that was the whole idea I mean yes. on that original original shoot I think I had at least two or three wind machines to blow mm. my hair back what's this original shoot we're talking about are you oh uh, well the original shoot was done with the photographer Tony McGee who was very famous at the time right. and it was to launch me as fashion editor of the Daily Mail having for the previous <gasps> oh. four or five years been the deputy Right. Mm. So that's what the feature today is all about, in that we took... I had kept, somehow, those amazing photographs... Brilliant. ..that Tony had taken back in September 86. They didn't come out till October the 6th. Right. But, and so what we did was I showed them to the editor of Female and it was decided it would be such a great idea for, as all the catwalks have shown that the 80s are back, to do a sort of a style version of it with a few modern tweaks. And the fact mm. that I was 26 then and I'm, I'm now 63, so it's a very different world altogether. And you're wearing in the pictures a leopard print skirt, which I know has come back very oh. much in vogue now. I do love a leopard print myself. Mm -hmm. You're wearing a bustier, which is also very fashionable. Mm -hmm. Oh, these are in the original pictures, yes. Yes, yes. in the original pictures. And massive hoop earrings and also tweed and double-breastedness there's a lot of double-breasted mm. suit jackets around at the moment I've noticed that has come back mm. yeah there are a lot but I think I'm um, certainly that Veronica beard one that I'm wearing in mm. the main picture is a fabulous version I mean it's got slight shoulder pads but it's very nipped in at the waist mm. and then it come, flares out beautifully and the other one does the dog tooth check one yeah definitely has shoulder pads in it and is cropped at the waist but that yes, allows I, you to wear it with wider trousers, which you probably yes. wouldn't have done originally. No. Yes. It's quite glamorous, the 80s, though, actually, if you really think about it. It's very yes. Joan Collins with sort of slightly glossy lips and yes. all of that. It does require people to make quite a lot more of an effort. Yes. It's a bit nicer than sort of the athleisure years, which is what we've been through for the last four or five years. <laughs> well, I do think that, yes. you know, we've all got a bit tired of slopping around the house and thinking mm. that it didn't matter and actually... Speak for yourself, Gail. I love slopping around the house. I do, <laughs> see, in one, I do see in one of these that you're wearing a bat wing. I did love a bat Ooh. wing. I'll be honest. I did love a bat wing. <gasps> oh, I love a bat wing. Yeah. Oh, bat you wing see, I don't. Good. I don't at all. I like a big billowing sleeve. <laughs> 
Oh, do you now? Yeah. The other thing I remember about the 80s was that we all seemed to have very complicated eyeshadow mm. and very complicated blue eyeliner. These photos are black and white, but I don't know if that was the thing that you had, Gail. Did you wear complicated eyeshadow? I think the ghastly thing is that we did all wear blue eyeshadow and we did follow <laughs> Princess Diana on that basis. Um, Frosted I, pink lipstick. Yeah. Oh. Mm. The amazing thing is that we managed to get back the makeup artist, Ariane Poole, who did the oh. original shoot and Gosh. did the modern day one. And we've been friends for 43 years. Oh, so, that was fun. I mean, it was fun. It was amazing mm. fun. But she obviously knew what she'd done and could see what she'd done first time around. But mm. yeah. I'm yeah. not and someone so- who piles makeup on anyway. No. So, no. yeah. So what would you say... If you were a sort of, you know, what would you take from the 80s that still works now in the, you know, 2020, question, whatever it is? Question. What What would be the thing that, you know, anyone, you could pull through the decades? I still would, and I always have done, is pull a blazer out, whatever shape mm. is in fashion, whether it's... I'm not so keen on the current vibe for oversized ones at all. I'm too short. It just, just mm. doesn't work for me. But something that gives you a shape, I mean, you can throw a blazer on over a white T-shirt and blue mm-hmm. jeans and can still look fantastic in it, mm. whether you've got supergas, trainers, ballet flats or espadrilles mm. or whatever. Yeah, OK, so a blazer. And do you still have your fabulous 80s wardrobe? I have some of them, yes, yeah. I have to admit. I mean, I was incredibly lucky. And also fashion was the sort of money to what you could buy ratio was so very different then. Mm. So... I know it sounds funny to say it, but Catherine Walker was just about affordable then. It's a bit mm. like buying houses that you could just mm. about afford to buy a tiny flat then and you couldn't even think about it at the same age now. So I've kept quite a few of her pieces. I've kept some by Thomas Stajewski, one by the fabulous Alistair Blair who designed some outfits for Sarah Ferguson, where she was Sarah Ferguson, and I wish I'd kept quite a few more. Yeah, Sarah Ferguson still does that very successfully, that kind of 80s look. She still wears a lot of suits yes, and things, she does, doesn't, doesn't she? she? And um, actually, she looks great in them, yeah. I think she mm. does. They really, really suit her. Yeah, it does. Well, I, well I'm amazed I, uh, you can still fit into them all, actually, yeah, frankly, because half a, my oh, wardrobe I can't fit into. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, I can't fit into them, but I keep them nonetheless because they have such amazing memories. So, oh. yes. <laughs> I, well, that's brilliant. <laughs> Well, actually, you still look tiny in the pictures now, so I can't imagine how you couldn't possibly fit into them. Um, no, I was a kind of very small eight back then, and I'm a sort oh, of gosh. middle-ish size ten now, so <laughs> they definitely well. don't fit. <laughs> <laughs> well, it comes to us all. Um, yes, it does. It does. <laughs> thank you very much, Gail. Lovely to talk to you. No, thank you for having me. Thank you. That was former Daily Mail fashion editor and founder of prelovedperfection.com, Gail Wolf. And you can see those fantastic pictures in today's Daily Mail, which would be Thursday. If you enjoy listening to The Half Hour, why not visit mailplus.co.uk slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus, me at WestminsterWag or Imogen at ImogenEJ. You have been listening to The Female Half Hour with me, Sarah Vine, and Imogen Edwards-Jones. Thank you for listening. <laughs>